Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. Today we're going to be talking about mentorship. If the best athletes in the world still need coaches to keep them developing and on the right path, then certainly we can all benefit from having a mentor who can teach us and help hold us accountable. So today we're going to talk about how you can develop a plan for lifetime learning. If you're ready to learn, then I'll see you on the other side. My first question for you is who are you listening to? Maybe you have some great advisors in your life. Maybe you're listening to your friends. Or maybe you're only listening to yourself. Whatever the case, you need to be cognitively aware of who you're listening to. When I was younger, I thought that I was limited to only listening to people that I knew personally. A great moment of awareness came when I realized that I could learn from almost anyone. I then decided that I wanted to learn from people who already were where I wanted to be. I then sought out opportunities to learn from these people. That's how I first joined John Maxwell's monthly mentorship program back around 2002. It was then that I became intentional about learning to be a better leader and to learn it from one of the best. In chiropractic, it wasn't so simple. I grew up on the West Coast and lived there for most of my life, including the years through school. At that time, it was difficult to find Gonstead doctors who were willing to mentor any students, especially in Southern California. I knew I needed help, so I decided to cast my net a little further out. Fortunately, our club was able to develop a relationship with Drs. Robert Katona and Mike Simmer. Through them, I met Dr. Herb Wood and Lynn Burr. While they had something unique and beneficial to teach, my point is that if you just start somewhere, one person can introduce you to another, and you never know who the person might be that can change your life with what they have to offer. My other point is that we all need somebody. That's one of the reasons why I try to get all of my guests to talk about who helped them along the way. I don't want anyone to get the misperception that any of us have made it all on our own. I eventually reached the point where I realized I shouldn't take criticism from anyone I wouldn't take advice from. And I wanted advice from people who already were where I wanted to be. I found that I could get this advice from three sources. The first source was great books. And that's why I'm such an avid reader to this day. It certainly hasn't always been that way. But once I made the decision to find great books and read them, the decision only got easier until it became a habit. I've been mentored by many wise and knowledgeable people whom I've never met. That's the value of books. The second source was through mentors, people of whom I could ask hard questions and receive thoughtful answers. These are the people I needed to help me get unstuck when my thinking was plateaued and I couldn't get past it on my own. The third source was through community. This is what happened at seminars. When two or more people that I highly respect are having a conversation, I just want to be a fly on the wall. I don't need to interject anything, but I want to hear their thoughts and see if I can incorporate their way of thinking into my own. Perhaps you're wondering what a good mentor looks like. Let me give you a few characteristics that will help you to find one for yourself. The first characteristic is that they have clear expectations. This requires that they be a good communicator who is capable of clearly explaining what they need to do, what you need to do. They need to be able to reduce and eliminate confusion instead of creating it. Different people have different communication styles and preferences. You need to find someone who works well with your style and your preference so you can get the most out of your interactions. The second characteristic is that they are willing to be vulnerable. By vulnerable, I mean that they must be willing to teach you from their failures and not just their successes. 
If every story is nothing but unicorns and rainbows, then it's probably a fantasy. A good mentor will share with you their failures, but they will also share what they learned, how they changed their thinking and behavior, and how this led to a different result. The third quality of a good mentor is the ability to focus on helping you without distraction and to have the empathy to put themselves in your shoes. One of the lessons that I've learned over the years is that it's too easy for people to offer advice when they bear no responsibility for the consequences of that advice. Is your mentor willing to get into the pit and do battle with you? Do they take responsibility for not only telling you what to do, but helping you implement it? I can tell you from my years coaching and playing football, when we lost, it was rarely due to poor planning and it was almost always due to poor execution. Anyone can give advice, but if they don't have the ability to help you implement and execute, then they probably shouldn't be your mentor. Finally, a good mentor will have the ability to clearly acknowledge and state our failures. After all, how can you do things better if you don't know what you're doing wrong? It's not that they harp on our failures, but they can't be telling us it's good when we both know that it's not. I once had a football coach who was quick to tell us what we were doing wrong, but at no point could I articulate what their version of right was. Ultimately, that isn't very helpful, and it wasted valuable time that could have been used for improvement. Conversely, one of the best coaches I ever had didn't stress the elements that were making things wrong, but instead, he kept telling me how to do it right and subtle changes I could make to do it more right. It was amazing how everyone on the team flourished under this type of tutelage. It created a mindset of constant improvement where our performance isn't right or wrong, but it's in a state of constant improvement. When it comes to finding mentors, I'm afraid that most people only consider one kind of mentor. That is, the mentor who knows you and knows that they help to make the difference. According to John Maxwell, there are two other kinds of mentors that are just as valuable. There is the mentor who knows you, but doesn't know that they made a difference, and those that don't know you, yet they still make a difference. I'm off, I often believe that I can learn from anyone, even if the only thing I learn is how not to do things. This helps to describe the proper attitude of the mentee. The mind that is tuned to learn will find lessons everywhere. Albert Einstein said that any fool can know. The goal is to understand. The purpose of the mentor-mentee relationship is to create understanding. Again, John Maxwell tells us that there are three things we can expect from a mentor. First, they know the way. A mentor can share with us insights and knowledge that can help us to move forward without making costly mistakes. It seems people often draw the false conclusion that just because someone has done something for a long time, it must mean that they are good at it. It's quite possible that they are simply too stubborn to know when it's time to give up. Don't choose a mentor simply because they are further down the road than you. Choose someone with a track record for excellence, who's already been where you want to go, and who genuinely cares enough about people to want to help you and not just help themselves at your expense. The second thing that you can expect is that they will show you the way. True mentorship is more than just spouting off platitudes. A true mentor will show you the way. To tell you the truth, they should already be going there, and they will allow you to tag along so you can observe the journey. Lastly, they will go the way. This means that they are willing to tag along with you on your journey so they can offer helpful guidance along the way. So a mentor will know the way, show the way, and go the way. For a mentor to do a great job, they need to be willing and able to communicate two things. How they did it wrong and how they got it right. The conversation will afford you the ability to learn twice. Learning what not to do, especially if it's instinctive to do it wrong, is just as valuable as learning to do it right. When you learn what not to do at the same time that you learn what to do, 
you've actually learned twice. As I'm saying this, it reminds me of the time that I got some good public speaking advice from a guy who was generally sloppy, lazy, and terrible at everything. He also had low character, and he was arrogant to boot. Who he was made me not want to listen to what he had to say. The fact of the matter is that his advice was good, and it was right. To this day, his advice helps me to avoid falling into a pitfall that I seem to fall into way too easily when I'm speaking in public. The point is, you can certainly learn from anyone, and they don't need to be an official mentor. This guy certainly was not my mentor, but he did teach me one very valuable thing. A true mentor should be able to do the same thing on a regular basis, and do it in a way that makes you actually want to hear what they have to say. One area of mentorship that's often overlooked is the level of expertise employed by the mentor. We obviously want someone who's further down the road than we are, but they need to be more than just a few steps ahead. I think of a friend of mine who was a professional river rafting water guide. He hadn't just gone rafting a few times. The river he worked was one that he knew forward, backward, and upside down. As he would say, the way you handle a turn in the river or a change in current is to know what is coming and prepare and position the boat before you even get there. Because of his position in the boat, where he physically stood, and his knowledge of the river, every single person in the boat could refuse to paddle and he could still get them through with no problems. This is the kind of person that you want for a mentor, and for all the same reasons. Someone who has enough knowledge and experience to know what to do before the problem arises, and to take action early, knowing what is coming. Having talked about mentorship, I'd like to shift gears just a little and talk with you about the most important role that any mentor can fill. Think about the greatest in any sport, Michael Jordan, Wayne Gretzky, or even Mike Tyson. But one thing they all had in common is that they all still had a coach. You might even argue that for them to be successful, they needed the right coach. The biggest reason why we all need a coach is for the simple fact that we are all human. As humans, we try to stay focused, but we can then reach a point of focus fatigue and we start to wander off course without even knowing it's happening. The role of the coach is to help us maintain our focus and to redirect us when we wander off course. Now, this is not something that we're fully incapable of doing on our own, but we may need to be taught how. I'd like to help you with this by reading an excerpt from the book. The book is The Inner Game of Tennis by Timothy Galway. As you might have guessed, this book actually has very little to do with tennis and more to do with mindset. This section is called The Meaning of Winning. The riddle of the meaning of competition didn't come clear to me until later, when I began to discover something about the nature of the will to win. The key insight into the meaning of winning occurred one day in the course of discussion with my father, who, as mentioned earlier, had introduced me to competition and had considered himself an avid competitor in the worlds of both sport and business. Many times previously we had argued about competition, with my taking the side that it was unhealthy and only brought out the worst in people. But this particular conversation transcended argument. I began by pointing to surfing as an example of a form of recreation which didn't involve one in competitiveness. Reflecting on, the, on this remark, Dad asks, but don't surfers in fact compete against the waves they ride? Don't they avoid the strength of the wave and exploit its weaknesses? Yes, but they're not competing against any person. They're not trying to beat anyone, I replied. No, but they are trying to make it to the beach, aren't they? Yes, but the real point for the surfer is to get into the flow of the wave and perhaps to achieve oneness with it. But then it hit me. Dad was right. The surfer does want to ride the wave to the beach, yet he waits in the ocean for the biggest wave to come along that he thinks he can handle. If he just wanted to be in the flow, 
He could do that on a medium-sized wave. Why does the surfer wait for the big wave? The answer was simple. And it unraveled the confusion that surrounded the true nature of competition. The surfer waits for the big wave because he values the challenge it presents. He values the obstacles the wave puts between him and his goal of riding the wave to the beach. Why? Because it is those very obstacles, the size and churning power of the wave, which draw from the surfer his greatest effort. It is only against the big waves that he is required to use all his skill, all his courage, and concentration to overcome. Only then can he realize the true limits of his capacities. At that point, he often attains his peak. In other words, the more challenging the obstacle he faces, the greater the opportunity for the surfer to discover and extend his true potential. The potential may have always been within him, but until it is manifested in action, it remains a secret hidden from himself. The obstacles are a very necessary ingredient to this process of self-discovery. Note that the surfer in this example is not out to prove himself. He's not out to show himself or the world how great he is, but is simply involved in the exploration of his latent capacities. He directly and intimately experiences his own resources and thereby increases his self-knowledge. From this example, the basic meaning of winning became more clear to me. Winning is overcoming obstacles to reach a goal, but the value in winning is only as great as the value of the goal reached. Reaching the goal itself may not be as valuable as the experience that can come in making a supreme effort to overcome the obstacles involved. The process can be more rewarding than the victory itself. Once one recognizes the value of having difficult obstacles to overcome, it is a simple matter to see the true benefit that can be gained from competitive sports. In tennis, who is it that provides a person with the obstacles he needs in order to experience his highest limits? His opponent, of course. Then is your opponent a friend or an enemy? He's a friend to the extent that he does his best to make things difficult for you. Only by playing the role of your enemy does he become your true friend. Only by competing with you does he in fact cooperate. No one wants to stand around on the court waiting for the big wave. In this use of competition, it is the duty of your opponent to create the greatest possible difficulties for you, just as it is yours to try to create obstacles for him. Only by doing this do you give each other the opportunity to find out what heights each can rise. So I arrived at the startling conclusion that true competition is identical with true cooperation. Each player tries his hardest to defeat the other, but in this use of competition, it isn't the other person we are defeating. It is simply a matter of overcoming the obstacles he presents. In true competition, no person is defeated. Both players benefit by their efforts to overcome the obstacles presented by the other. Like two bulls butting their heads against one another, both grow stronger, and each participates in the development of the other. This attitude can make a lot of changes in the way you approach a tennis match. In the first place, instead of hoping your opponent is going to double fault, you actually wish that he'll get his first serve in. This desire for the ball to land inside the line helps you to achieve a better mental state for returning it. You tend to react faster and move better, and by doing so, you make it more challenging for your opponent. You tend to build confidence in your opponent as well as in yourself, and this greatly aids your sense of anticipation. Then at the end, you shake hands with your opponent, and regardless of who won, you thank him for the fight he put up, and you mean it. I used to think that if I was playing a friendly match against a player with a weak backhand, it was a bit unfair to always play his weakness. In the light of the foregoing, nothing could be further from the truth. 
if you play his backhand as much as you can, it can only get better. He can only get better as a result. If you're a nice guy and play his forehand, his backhand will remain weak. In this case, the real nice guy is the competitor. This same insight into the nature of true competition led to yet another reversal in my thinking, which greatly benefited my playing. Once when I was 15, I upset an 18-year-old in a local tournament. After the match, my father came down from the stands and heartily congratulated me for my victory. But my mother's reaction was, oh, that poor boy, how badly he must feel to have been beaten by someone so much younger. It was a clear example of the psyche pulled against itself. I felt pride and guilt simultaneously until I realized the purpose of the competition. I never felt really happy about defeating someone, and mentally I had my hardest time playing well when I was near victory. I have found this to be true with many players, especially when on the verge of an upset. One cause of the uptightness experienced at these times is based on the false notion about competition. If I assume that I am making myself more worthy of respect by winning, then I must believe, consciously or unconsciously, that by defeating someone, I am making him less worthy of respect. I can't go up without pushing someone else down. This belief involves us in a needless sense of guilt. You don't have to become a killer to be a winner. You merely have to realize that killing is not the name of the game. Today I play every point to win. It's simple and it's good. I don't worry about winning or losing the match, but whether or not I'm making the maximum effort during every point because I realize that that is where the true value lies. Maximum effort does not mean the super exertion of self one. It means concentration, determination, and trusting your body to let it happen. It means maximum physical and mental effort. Again, competition and cooperation become one. The difference between being concerned about winning and being concerned about making the effort to win may seem subtle, but in the effect, there is a great difference. When I'm concerned only about winning, I'm caring about something that I can't wholly control. Whether I win or lose the external game is a result of my opponent's skill and effort as well as my own. When one is emotionally attached to results that he can't control, he tends to become anxious and then try too hard. But one can control the effort he puts into winning. One can always do the best he can at any given moment. Since it's impossible to feel anxiety about an event that one can control, the mere awareness that you are using maximum effort to win each point will carry you past the problem of anxiety. As a result, the energy which would otherwise have gone into the anxiety and its consequences can then be utilized in one's effort to win the point. In this way, one's chances of winning the outer game are maximized. Thus, for the player of the inner game, it is the moment-by-moment effort to let go and to stay centered in the here-and-now action which offers the real winning and losing. And this game never ends. One final word of caution. It is said that all great things are achieved by great effort. Although I believe that is true, it is not necessarily true that all great effort leads to greatness. A very wise person once told me, when it comes to overcoming obstacles, there are three kinds of people. The first kind sees most obstacles as insurmountable and walks away. The second kind sees an obstacle and says, I can overcome it, and starts to dig under, climb over, or blast through it. The third type of person, before deciding to overcome the obstacle, tries to find a viewpoint where what is on the other side of the obstacle can be seen. Then, only if the reward is worth the effort, does he attempt to overcome the obstacle. I wanted to share this short excerpt with you, because this realization is where I began to see real improvement. I'm a competitive person, and I'm both driven and challenged by competition. 
It's easy to get misguided into thinking that we are competing against other chiropractors or even worse, competing against medical doctors. One day I realized that wasn't the case. I was competing against my patient's body that had gone rogue. The challenge then was twofold. Could I actually find the problem and could I fix it quickly? The challenge was much more like surfing than I had ever imagined. Once I had this realization and I didn't have to worry about a potential loser who might be a poor sport, I knew I could commit myself to mastery, driven by this need to compete with every body that walked in the door. This is also the reason why I'm now so willing to help anyone to achieve their highest level ability. It isn't about them competing against me or me against them, because it's about them learning to compete at a high level against every body that walks in their door. If you take nothing else away from this topic today, I hope you can take away a solid understanding that competitiveness is not only good, but also productive but only when we understand that our only competition is the obstacles that are placed in front of us. The idea of mentoring is very important to me. The Life University Gonstead Club has started what they call the Gonstead Global Mentorship Program. If you're not aware of this, you can find it on Facebook under that name. If you're a student, fill out the student form and they will match you with someone who can begin to mentor you. If you're a doctor and you have something to give, go to the same place and fill out the doctor survey. They will match you with someone and you can begin to pour into someone else's life, career, and success. My only caution is that you should not give advice you aren't willing to take accountability for. For mentorship to work, both sides need to be able to hold the other accountable. That is definitely not a one-way street. I hope you found this podcast to be a valuable source of mentorship where you gain access to learning from people you might not have access to on your own. In addition to the podcast, the 1505 Club has a YouTube channel. Don't get too excited yet. There isn't anything on there. But I'm in the process of putting together some whiteboard videos that I think you will find helpful. Just know that there are many of us who are committed to making the next generation of Gonstead chiropractors the best generation yet. If you need help, please reach out because someone will be willing to help you. Well, I hope you learned something valuable today. And as always, I hope you have the very best week possible. And I'll see you again next time.